Hi friends, this is episode 68 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hi everybody, thank you so much for joining us again. I can tell you honestly, I'm more excited about you going through this episode than many episodes before this. Not that the others were bad, but this one was so good. The conversation went so well, but even more importantly, the topic material, I have never been more excited to dig into something and study something that I did not know. The funny thing is Daniel chapter 10 included something that I really haven't explored before. It had some really mysterious phrases in there about spiritual warfare, what's going on behind the scenes. And it talks about this spirit prince of Persia and the battle that it's doing with with God's archangel there or city angel there, nation angel. And so it was really fascinating for me to go through. I know you're going to be fascinated as well. So I won't go on and on in the intro, but I do want to make sure that you know, if you're joining us for the first time, that we have study guides that go along with each of these episodes. You can find them on our website, thebiblelab.com. That's right, just thebiblelab.com. Go to the episodes pages. Go to You Never Stand Alone, which is the, the title of this series and go down to episode 10 of that and get your study guide because you're going to find out some things that will absolutely change your life, will change the way that you're living, will change everything about how you see what's going on in the real world today with all of the major movements and what's happening in the spiritual realm that we're reflecting. So I can't wait for you to go through this journey with us today. Thanks so much for joining us. And if you are ever in the Loma Linda area, I would love to see you face-to-face. So make sure you contact us on our website and we will reserve you seats for the Bible Lab. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the Bible Lab. The rest of the people in this room keep their guardian angels more busy than mine. The rest of the people in this room keep their guardian angels more busy than mine. Yes, no, or maybe. All right. Oh, this is, uh, this is actually what I expected uh, to see no, because uh, this is the Bible lab, and I know you're crazy people, and you keep your guardian angels very busy, very, very busy, and the rest of you say maybe, because you're just not sure... Uh, if everyone else is keeping their angel as busy as yours. Yeah, so I saw about uh, 40% no. I saw about 40% maybe, and the the rest 20% no. So yes, we're keeping our guardian angels pretty busy. Number two, God's angels are stronger than Satan's angels. God's angels are, ah, this is what I expected. Yes, yes, so I'm seeing... 98% 98% yes, 1% no, 1% maybe. This is going to be a fun conversation today. Because I know why you answered yes, because had I been sitting in the audience and some crazy guy up front with stupid statements asked me to say yes, no, or maybe to this, I would have raised the yes card too. Why? Because how I've been brought up in the church is, God is stronger than Satan, but we've never talked about the angels which come from the same source. 
all angels came from the same source. So the question is, when it's angel versus angel in the ring, who's stronger? And we're going to talk about that today because some of the most bizarre statements are made by an angel to Daniel. And when we look at those statements today, it makes you do that little thing your dog does when you make a weird noise and the little one ear goes up and he kind of looks at you like, what? You're going to do that today. I did it. As I was researching for this week's conversation, it's, it's probably one of the most exciting weeks of study I've had because I'm a very curious person. Like most of you, we share the same thing. We're very curious people. And when I read through a couple of texts and I did the little puppy dog ear thing, I was like, what? I could not wait to do, to do the research for this week because I had no idea what I was going to find because it's so bizarre and so far away from the teaching that I was brought up with and I would guess the teaching that many of you were brought up with. It's something very foreign because we don't talk about this. We just say, all you got to do, just call on the name of Jesus. Jesus is stronger. And the angels run away at the sound of his name. You're going to see something different today. You're going to see something very unique that I think is going to change your life today in how you employ your spirituality, how you employ your angels and even how you view some of the things that you haven't been able to figure out in the past year and a half to two years. Why are things happening in the world the way they are, and why do some things happen really quickly in mass? Just, it's like all of society changes their mind about something, and we can't figure out why and where the source is coming from. When you see what this angel communicates to Daniel, I think it's going to bring us a lot of enlightenment for today as far as what's happening in the spiritual realm that we cannot see. Number three, the spiritual battles in the Bible between God and his angels against Satan and, uh, against Satan and his angels are visual metaphors, not physical battles. I'll read that again. The spiritual battles in the Bible between God and his angels against Satan and his angels are visual metaphors and not physical battles. Yes, no, or you, some of you are taking a long time, even though I read it twice. Okay, we're all over the place. The yes and the no's look equal, but I'm seeing about 10% maybes. Okay, so like 45%, 45%, and 10% maybe. Yeah, we got to talk about this today. Because our society, I don't know uh, how many of you, your grandparents or, or your great-grandparents, were always talking about the spiritual battle. It's not a battle of flesh and blood. You know, they'd quote Paul but principalities. We're going to talk about that today. And my biggest disappointment is I didn't schedule this better so that this would be next week where it's closer to Halloween because <laughs> this is really going to be creepy, okay? So my bad, but just it, it's the season. I guess it's in Target. So I guess we can talk about Halloween stuff and the spiritual. Number four, there are specific angels, both good and bad, who are assigned to oversee my nation. There are nations, both good and bad, who are assigned to oversee my nation. Wow, look at this crowd. Okay, either you're voting opposite of what you think you should because of all the ones before, or all of you are really keying into the Jewish tradition. We're going to talk about quite a bit because about 85% of you said yes. Those of you who said no or maybe don't feel bad. Um, 
But we're going to talk about this today because there was a Jewish tradition that was so common, that was so ingrained in the minds of the people that Daniel doesn't think it necessary to unpack what he's talking about. There are times in scripture when some things are thrown out there and you just read right past it. It's typically because the writer expected the reader to need no explanation, that you should just know this. And some of the things that are said in Daniel chapter 10 are not explained because of the Jewish tradition of spirituality and these angels who are in charge of the nation and how there, there are also this mirror image of the, the enemy's angels who are also nation angels. And we're going to talk about these nation angels today, and it's going to be something that I have never talked about up front, so perhaps you've never heard of either. Number five, God has a precise timeline for the future that he has written out in which his angels fight to protect. Okay, look at this. Once again, we're all over the place. Yeah, we're all over the place. I think it's 33% of every color, yes, no, and maybe out here. That's good. That actually makes me feel good because it tells me we're all going to learn something today. That today's not going to be a waste of time just plodding through the same Jesus loves you, love him back type of conversation that we typically have in church, right? So today I want us to dig into the word to start out. I'm going to go through the first 14 verses of Daniel, then we'll take a pause. We'll unpack a little bit, but I'm certain that even in the first 14 of the 20 uh, 20 verses that we're going to go through later on is going to... uh, it, it really is going to impact you in quite a mighty way. We'll try to get to the second half. Daniel 10, verses 1 to 4, New Living Translation says, In the third year of the reign of King Cyrus of Persia, Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, had another vision. He understood that the vision concerned events certain to happen in the future, times of war and great hardship. When this vision came to me, I, Daniel, had been in mourning for three whole weeks. All that time I had eaten no rich food, no meat or wine crossed my lips, and I used no fragrant lotions until those three weeks had passed. On April 23, I was standing on the banks of the great Tigris River. I looked up and saw a man dressed in linen clothing with a belt of pure gold around his waist. His body looked like a precious gem, his face flashed like lightning, and his eyes flamed like torches. His arms and feet shone like polished bronze, and his voice roared like a vast multitude of people. Verse 7, only I, Daniel, saw this vision. The men with me saw nothing, but they were suddenly terrified and ran away to hide. So I was left there all alone to see this amazing vision. My strength left me, my face grew deathly pale, and I felt very weak. Then I heard the man speak, and when I heard the sound of his voice, I fainted and lay there with my face to the ground. Verse 10, just then, a hand touched me and lifted me, still trembling, to my hands and knees. And the man said to me, Daniel, you are very precious to God, so listen carefully to what I have to say to you. Stand up, for I have been sent to you. When he said this to me, I stood up still trembling. Then he said, don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your request has been heard in heaven. I have come 
in answer to your prayer. Verse 13, But for 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. Then Michael, one of the archangels, came to help me, and I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now I am here to explain what will happen to your people in the future, for this vision concerns a time yet to come. Okay, I know, you already have questions. Get your cards ready. Questions, comments, ready. And while you're getting that ready, I want to give you a little bit of background. First of all, the setting. What's going on? It says it's in the third year of the reign of King Cyrus of Persia. That would be about 536 B.C. Either that year or six, you know, a, a year before after, 35 or 37. But most of the commentaries pick the year 536 B.C. This would be the first time Passover has been held in Jerusalem. In all this time of captivity, 50 years earlier, while they're in captivity, the temple is destroyed. So they have not had a Passover service in the temple at Jerusalem for 50 years. But during this reign of Cyrus, he actually had released, about a year year earlier, he had released a lot of the captives. You can go back home. But only about 50,000 of the Hebrews who were captive in Babylon actually chose to go home. They preferred the lifestyle, the comfort of Babylon. It was home to them now. It's the first time they can have Passover, and yet they haven't used the last year wisely. They haven't said, this is our chance. We need to get everything ready. We've got these feasts coming. We have these special days, these special Sabbaths coming. They've done nothing. In fact, they have not started on the foundation of the temple at the time that Daniel is in vision here. That's one of the reasons why he's in mourning, most people believe, is because even though we have a chance to worship God, to, to do these feasts, the people of God still don't even have enough initiative, uh, initiative for a year to have even started the foundation. It's actually the next month, and you can find this in, in, uh, in Ezekiel uh, Uh, excuse me, in Ezra 3, Ezra chapter 3. It's the next month they actually start the foundation. But during this time, nothing's been going on. And so Daniel is in deep mourning. He's been fasting and praying for three whole weeks. So during this time, he tells you exactly what date it is that he goes in the vision. The New Living Translation translates it onto April 23. Now, I've wondered, because anytime you get a specific in Scripture, one of the theological things you have to do as you're looking at why, why should I pay attention, what are the things that jump out? Because some of you have asked me in the, in the past, how do you find these things in Scripture? One of the rules of theology, of exegesis is the big word that's called, uh, one of the rules is anytime there is a specific name, date, place, written down because it was so difficult back then to write. Um, So they use the economy of writing, which means that if it's not important, we just don't write it down. So if a name is given, if a place is given, if a date is given, it's important, important enough to use the time and the materials to, to write this down. So as theologians have looked at this date, April 23, some have looked at it and said, well, obviously it was a special date in the mind of Daniel. 
also the place. He's on the bank of a large body of water. Tigris River was huge, and it ran hundreds of miles from Babylon, and the closest it came to the capital of Babylon where Daniel lived was about 20 miles. So he's about 20 miles at the shortest, or even farther at the longest, uh, up to a couple hundred miles. But most people think he was at the closest place because he's aged. He's between the age of 85 and 90 years old, and that's why he himself has not returned back to Jerusalem. He doesn't think he'll make the trip. He, he can't make it. It's a long, arduous trip back to Jerusalem. And so here he is against the banks, and some theologians think, and I think there is a possibility here, that the reason why he gives the date is because this is around the same date that their tradition, the Jewish tradition, is when the children of Israel were let go from Egypt in Exodus. They went out from Egypt, and they took quite a unique route. But many, according to tradition, say it was on this date that the children of Israel were backed up right at the edge of another body of water, the Red Sea, not knowing what was to come, but knowing that the army of, of Pharaoh was coming and closing in on them. And that evening, uh, many of the Israelites had no idea what was to come. So some theologians look at this and say, because the same words are, are used, right at the edge of body water, and chances are it was around that time, at least in Daniel's mind, that was a traditional date of that many days after Passover that they found themselves against a body of water and trapped in that position. Many people think that Daniel also felt like he was in another position, against the body of water, enemy at his back, not knowing exactly what was to come. And it's in that context that a message comes from heaven. Now, I'm sure you have some questions and comments just from the first 14 verses. I'm going to go to the green microphone first. Yes. Okay, I have actually two comments. Yes. So if I look in verse 3, and Daniel's talking about, he was so disturbed that he was not able to eat or drink. And he says, I was not able to eat any meat, no meat. Yeah. So I go back to verse chapter 1 of Daniel, and it yeah. talks about the test and yeah. the fact that they ate just vegetables. Yeah. And for years, I always was thinking, well, Daniel must have been a vegetarian then going forward. Yeah. I don't get that impression from this verse here. Yeah. That's my first thought. Yeah. Okay. And then I want to look at... Um, where it talks about the 21 days, the angel says, I was prevented for 21 days from coming. Yeah, yeah. So when you bring the question, is the battle a physical or is it a spiritual battle? I sense because of the time factor here that there must have been a physical prevent prevention, not just in our mind and thinking it, but the, these angels were actually battling physically. Yes. And so I just... Yeah, I love that. Can I, can I take those in, in two different parts? And then I know there's going to be some follow-ups, especially on that verse 13, crazy verse coming up. I'm going to uh, take a step back to verse 3. Uh, you, you did very, you know, accurately see there seems to be a difference in activity of Daniel's diet from chapter 1 to chapter 10. Now, a couple of things we need to understand it was, a not, it was not against Jewish practice, law, or culture to eat meat 
um, eating meat was a part of their diet. When you look at what commentators say about Daniel chapter 1, what they were refusing was meats that were offered to the gods of the captors. And so what many uh, theologians look at is why would Daniel ask for only vegetables? It's because he was looking for what are things that I know are edible items that I can be fairly certain these were not offered to the gods. Although many of the gods of the area uh, would receive grain offerings or vegetable offerings, whatever, at that place in that time, many theologians say, chances are vegetables were not something that they would offer to the gods. They typically would offer uh, meat, uh, some sort of slain animal cooked, prepared, and then presented before um, either the altar to the god or an idol of the god. And so thank you for clarifying that because many people think that Daniel went his entire life just eat, eating vegetables. And although uh, eating vegetables is a, is a great diet. I'm a vegetarian myself. Um, that wasn't his common practice. But when he and the Hebrews first were, were taken to Babylon, they were, trying to, they were trying to make a stand in saying, look, by eating food that's presented to your gods, it is seen culturally and theologically <clears throat> at that time as accepting that God as your God as well. And so he didn't want to be part of that. The second thing that people say about the food um, is that by eating the same food as the king is eating, it had nothing to do with theology. It had everything to do with politics, where um, the reason why the king would even offer to the prisoners food that was from his table is to show, hey, I'm a merciful king. I'm a good king. Once you get to know me and, and my policies, my kingdom, you will willingly give up and make yourself part of my kingdom because what I have to offer is the best. And so what Daniel did in refusing, and if many of you remember that conversation we had back uh, about, uh, about that conflict, Daniel actually goes through this steward or this underling of the king and there's this real awkward phraseology that happens because refusing the king's food should have been a death sentence because you're not refusing his food, you're refusing his leadership. You're saying, I will not eat with you. Um, if you look at the Hebrew mindset of supping or eating with someone, it's the reason why God uh, begins and ultimately ends in Revelation that his greatest desire is to have a long table and to sit down and eat with you. Because in the Hebrew mindset, that's where true acceptance and, and where family is, is truly solidified. And so what Daniel is refusing in chapter one is more of a political statement than a dietary statement to where he's saying, by accepting your food, I accept you and your kingdom as my kingdom. And so in many ways, God blessed them with health for taking a stand for God and his kingdom over and against Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. And so dietary-wise, yeah, that, that the Jews ate meat very much. Uh, most people have a hard time with the next phrase and drink no wine, but maybe someone else will have a card, so I, I don't have to deal with it because you didn't ask that. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the next microphone because I imagine it will be about verse 13 as well. Uh, is the green microphone again the next one? Yes, okay. 
Thank you, Pastor, for yeah. clarifying that. I just wanted to piggyback to that because in the Bible, there is only in the Old Testament, there is not much about conversion from the Gentiles into the Judaism, except for two times. Yes. Darius, when he declares that Daniel's God yeah. and that decree and the time of Esther. Yeah. So the reason why, you know, it, it makes sense what you just said, because people by then knew the Jewish culture. Yeah. And so they knew that they eat certain meat that are different. Yes. And also there's a kosher situation going on, meat without blood. Because we know in the New Testament, uh, when the Paul and Peter, they were arguing about what to not do, they, argued on, uh, they agreed on three things. Don't eat food that's offered to the idol. Yep. Don't eat uh, for anything that has blood in it. Yep. And no fornication. Yes. Those are the three things they agreed upon. And Paul said, whatever you do, do for the glory of God yeah. and do not be condemned. So it does make sense about the dietary law, how yeah. Daniel. And then, you know, over time, when you're in a kingdom with pagans, you automatically change your lifestyle. Yeah. It shows how important peer pressure is. That's true. And I'm, I'm so glad. Thank you for those comments. I'm so glad you said them because in my, you know, desire for brevity, some people could have thought I was saying something else as well. The Jews did have dietary laws. There were certain meats that they definitely would not partake in, and it had to be handled in a way where the blood was drained in a very specific way, and we call it kosher uh, methodologies today. But yeah, so there was that, but they still eat meat. It just has to be, you know, also prepared in, in a proper way too. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, down here, red microphone, Raul. So I uh, you seem to suggest the possibility that Satan's angels are stronger than God's no. angels. No. No. Okay, then you are safe. Yes. Well, but keep, hang on to the microphone because I, I want to have a dialogue with you because I know you. I, I know you've dug into this. You're an extremely smart guy. I didn't say they're stronger, but I also did say they're not weaker. They're the same. God created the angels, and we have nowhere in Scripture where it says God withdrew any of their abilities, any of their strength, any of their power, because how could a fair God do that? A fair God can't say, oh, I'll play a game against you, I'll, I'll, I'll have a sparring match, but I'll take away some of your power so that I always win. Then he would prove Satan correct that God is not fair. So what I am saying and what it seems to say in Daniel chapter 10, which is bizarre, is that the angels actually fight and they do come to places to where you're like, this is taking three weeks. They're obviously very well matched. Strength for strength. So what is the battle? Is it a sword fight? Is it a boxing match? Is it a political match? What type of match is happening right now and what happened in Daniel chapter 10 to cause this angel to say, I would have been here three weeks earlier. I just couldn't until Michael, the archangel came and actually we tag teamed. He took over so that I could have a break. I'm in intermission right now. I'm, I'm here and he says, you'll see at the end, I gotta go back to the fight because this is my fight. And I got to go back to the spiritual prince of, of Persia because it's still a fight. But the only reason why I was able to come here, I couldn't overpower the spirit prince of Persia. So I had to have someone else come to 
take up my place in the battle so I could come spend a few moments with you. And at the end, he says, okay, well, I'm sorry, I got to go back because I, I, I got to take my place in the battle again. We're going to talk about that. So that's where, Raul, it's very important to me that people understand, I think theologically, in order to help our kids feel good, in, in order to have really nice little felt board sets in primary class, we've taught the lesson that the moment God's presence is there, boom, evil cannot even stand in place. I will say, whenever God, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit steps in, yes, that happens, but in a very unique way. And theologians who have tried to twist the scripture to say that this is Jesus Christ himself in spirit form, he is the man at the river, have not looked at the troublesome text that says, well, obviously God's not as powerful as this angel, the spirit prince of Persia, because three weeks and he still couldn't win. And that's not theologically accurate either. So the question is, what battles are happening in the spiritual world, angel to angel, what are they doing, and why is it that this specific time here, he has to have someone tag team in so he can go tell Daniel some stuff that he's been sent from God to share with Daniel. He just hasn't had time because the angels are working in real time right now. Real time. So. Those are very good ideas. And, uh, <laughs> but I still love to argue with you. And I um, love arguing with you. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, um, um, this this um, event made me think: if God's angels were weaker, why would He have them? Yes. What's the point of having an army of angels? Yes. That are weaker than Satan's angels. Yeah. But so it he wouldn't wasn't make weaker. any sense. This angel's not weaker. This this As angel I said, is I'm equally matched. I'm not arguing matched. with you. He's equally matched. Uh, so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, what would would they be helpful at all? Yeah. So, uh, so that's that's a question you have to ask, Raul. That's why I appreciate your viewpoint so much. Is because you're asking the questions we have to ask. Because many people will try to look for the easy answer. No, we have to look for the answer that works, and it's not just a pat answer. And so, what you're asking is, why why would we be in a situation? to where there are angels equally matched, and what are they fighting over, and why is it that God would allow a situation to continue where Satan's angels, who are made exactly the same way as God's angels, they were just cast down out of heaven, not allowed to live there because of their rebellion, why is it that God would allow true battle, a spiritual battle to go on, we haven't, we haven't clarified what that battle is. Once we do, I think many of you, the little light bulb is going to turn on of what's going on and why would God allow head-to-head -head spiritual battles to go on and what does it mean? We have to look at the hierarchy of angels because the Jews believed that each nation had a nation angel mm -hmm. and under them there were several ranks of angels all the way down to your personal guardian angel. So what are they doing? Other than trying to help you when you're texting and driving, what are they doing? Yeah, yeah and the rest of Scripture um, portrays 
the um, angels are as working almost without limitations, other than God's own limit, uh, the limitations that God gives them. Yeah, and uh, and they obey God's orders, and they do. And finally, you know, verse, um, first verse, yes, it says that the vision concerned events certain to happen in the future, times of war and great hardship. Yes. And I wonder, you know, we tend to think that all scripture is for um, humans. And I wonder if this particular episode of the struggle in heaven between the spirits, the yep. angels, yep. is a learning experience for the angels, for God's angels, for those times, difficult times that are coming with us. And God is saying, I'm going to prepare you because in the future there will be s it will be so hard that even you angels will need to be better prepared. It's, you're absolutely correct. And that's, as I did my research, that was one of the biggest surprises, which should not have been a surprise to me. I'm a theologian. I should, I should understand theologically what's happening in the spiritual battle in the great controversy. And what you just touched on, Raul, is that there are two parallel battles going on. In fact, right there, the very phrase that, that you used there at the beginning of Daniel 10, where it says, I need to tell you about wars or conflict, however the different translation you have translates it. Most of the commentators say because it's a unique, unique phraseology there that many have to ponder, is this the messenger himself saying, we've got war while you have war. We see a war that you never see. And we're fighting a war. At the same time, you're worried about the human war. There's another war that is literally entangled with your war. And the reason why you're having your war is because of what's happening in the spiritual war. And as things are developing in the spiritual battle, it has a very real effect on the human battle, what's happening in the human realm. And so instead of us affecting the spiritual realm, the spiritual realm is affecting our realm. And that's what many, many theologians uh, say there. Green Mike and then purple Mike. Yes. Well, I do hope you say more about this because at first reading, one might have a, a few questions. Um, one is, it says that Daniel was very precious to God well, what if you aren't very precious to God? And so <laughs> what kind of angel are you going to have <laughs> fighting for you? And it almost sounds like <laughs> there aren't enough angels to go around. And so what mm. what's the deal with that? Um, so, I love it. and I also had a question about the purpose or the, um, what prayer accomplishes in, in mm. these spiritual battles. Could you maybe say a little bit about our prayers and how yes. it affects the spiritual warfare that's going on. I love it. Yes, I love that, Jennifer. I think I think you've keyed into something that we all go through, which is when we think about the spiritual battle for me, we realize how much we've battled for God, and so we do not in any way feel like we would be precious in His sight. I'll ask a question of the parents and grandparents your kids, your grandkids, um, do they call you as often as you want them to? Do they text you? 
constantly. If, if you do, well, you have a Daniel, okay? Uh, what a precious, <laughs> precious child. You love it because they're staying connected. They're doing everything that they can to make sure that your relationship is close. But let me ask you about the other kids and the other grandkids. Even though they don't always call, always text, write, come over to see you, or even let you see your grandkids, in your heart, do you still love them as if they are a precious soul to you? Yes. The only difference is those moments of interaction where you are allowed to tell them how precious they are are few and far between. But it doesn't change in your heart how precious that individual is to you. And in the same way, regardless of how often you are communicating with God in your way and the way that he communicates with you, you're still precious to him. He has an unconditional love for you. There's no such thing as unconditional relationship, so your relationship may be a little bit farther than it needs to be. But at the moment that you choose to connect and communicate with God, you are allowing, you are opening yourself up to opportunities for God to express how precious you are to him. Jesus talks about this, you know, when he talks about how we worry about things. Why are you worrying? You know, he talks about sparrows. Your heavenly father sees a sparrow fall. So how much more? We don't focus on the how much more. How much more does your heavenly father love you and care about you? Um, this how much more, we always think of how much less I'm doing or how much more I could be doing and not focusing on the how much more God loves us than we could possibly imagine. So it's wonderful in this moment that this uppity-up angel, because there are rankings here, this uppity-up angel comes and expresses this to Daniel, but it doesn't mean that the rest of the people are not as precious in God's sight. It just means there are certain people who have allowed themselves to be open to the spiritual so that God can communicate in his way and, and more frequently. Now, you asked about this whole thing of, about angels. Uh, there doesn't seem to be enough angels for everyone, whatever. Um, what you don't want to lose sight of in Daniel 10 is that even though there are angels who are like, for example, you have the spiritual prince of Persia, well, God also has God's spiritual prince for that nation. According to Jewish mindset and according to this messenger, there are such a thing as angels who are in charge of certain nations or certain groups of people. The Jews believe that Michael was their uh, special nation angel and that Michael was the one making sure to protect them Michael was the one making sure that they received all the messages that they needed from God and ultimately that the history that God had written beforehand, which we'll talk about in a minute, was protected because the moment that the enemy spirits of, uh, of Israel would learn anything about God's plan and God's roadmap of how things were going to go, they would thwart it and try to undo it. And so we hear from these uppity-up angels, these angels in high places, but it doesn't mean there's not rankings because the Jews believed that there were several ranks of angels and that there is also an angel for every individual. And so we call those guardian angels. Um, and so, yes, there's plenty of angels to, to go around um, uh, according to, to people's theology 
it's not that because you're, these angels are busy, you don't have access to an angel. Um, beyond that, God spoke to us uh, while he was here, just letting us know that his presence, his Holy Spirit, is available to anyone and, and everyone at all times. And so we have more at our disposal than just a guardian angel. Um, and I want to talk to you about the, the role of angels, especially as we, we see this here. Uh, Purple Mike, over here. Um, so it says here, Michael, one of the archangels, came to help me. Okay, so bigger muscles, more time at the gym, what? He was yeah. the one that was going to be able to overcome the spirit of Persia, the evil spirit of Persia? So this is what the commentaries say, because I have questions about this too. But a second question to that. Haven't closer. we been told before that Michael was the uh, epitome of, or was the stand-in for Jesus? A lot of people have said that. In fact, even some commentators yeah. do a lot of gymnastics to try to prove that all these guys, uh, or at least most of the guys in Daniel chapter 10, they're all God. They're, the, they're all the son of God pre-incarnate, which means before he came as a baby, yeah. as the Christ. And there are challenges here in chapter 10, the same as, remember when we were in chapter 8, where people were trying to say the one to come uh, was Jesus, but then if you read the next verse, it, it says he's a really horrible person. Um, so people have tried to apply Christ in these. There are some challenges, because if Michael comes in and Michael himself is not able to overpower the spirit prince of Persia, and this spirit, which many people, this is the other thing that they do that drives me crazy. Many theologians try to say, well, this messenger was Gabriel, and so they call him Gabriel. There's a problem here. Gabriel's already come twice before. Daniel should recognize him by now. He doesn't call him by name. He just says one who looks like a man, and because of that, as a conservative theologian, I say you cannot add to scripture something that's not there, and you have to be very conservative about how you allow the language to grow into your fables and your traditions. And what we see here is that this messenger, who I don't believe was Gabriel, otherwise he would have been named, uh, has to get back to the battle because Michael couldn't end it, which tells me that Michael was equally balanced with whatever nation spirit angel was assigned by Satan over Persia. And because of that, I can't responsibly as a theologian say that Christ himself, the son of God, the actual personhood of God, cannot overpower his subservient created angels. And because of that, I know there are many people who will be upset, and I know I'll get a few emails, but we have to allow scripture to speak on its own. And we can't start saying, well, it's this, it's that. Many people will go to chapter 12, which is next week, by the way. Uh, we're, we're going to chapter 12 next week, and we'll try to look and see that there are parallels between Christ and, and, uh, and Michael, and we'll talk about those. But I have a real hard time just throwing him in there just so we can say, well, this is the Christ, because you have to be careful. So you're saying that Christ is not powerful enough to overcome one of his created angels? What does that say about God? But and that an he would allow it to but continue. But is an archangel stronger than an angel? And an I, it's believed the archangel is stronger than, than an angel, yes. But yet the messenger angel has to get back to the battle. 
Uh, it's, there, there's a couple of things. As I read through it, an archangel uh, by many is considered stronger, but also it's considered more of ranking. So just by position, you would match up this angel with that angel as they're battling. And I want to get into, we will have five minutes maybe today to talk about what that battle is. But thank you, uh, Carolyn. That's the questions we need to ask. Red microphone. Um, so we're sort of focusing on the physical strength, but in, if you back off and the whole controversy is about God trying to show us that he's trustworthy yeah. and, um, and who he is, and, I, and part of that is um, allowing for Jesus, the Messiah, to be born eventually. So um, I think partly what, what I take away from this is we all have a choice, and Cy Cyrus had a choice, Daniel had a choice, we have a choice, and, um, and so, but God, um, God's angels is, he's, he's not gonna use coercion and force like um, Satan did with Job, right? Yes. Um, so is there a combination of both the physical aspect of the angels trying to be able to get to us, and um, Satan has that advantage, so to speak, of using force, whereas Jesus, through his angels, is trying to impress. I see your, yeah. can angels influence the minds of humans? Yes. I don't know, by bringing us yeah. messages from God, and yeah. because yeah. that's the only way he has to woo us, and he's not, force is not gonna do, do yeah. it for us. So. Yeah, we always have to let, I, and thank you, because that's right where we need to transition into, is what is this battle? Is it physical? Is it spiritual? What does it look like? What is it? Uh, is it coercion? What, what is it? Um, we always have to let scripture define scripture. Otherwise, people do, you know, philosophy to, to try to explain theology. Um, if you look at other moments in scripture where we can see behind the veil, we can see the spirit side. We have the book of Job, which is believed to be the very first book written. It was written before even Genesis. Um, and here's a story of the enemy, Satan, having a conversation with God saying, I can turn Job. I will get him to curse you. And God's saying, I don't know, there's no, nobody else like him. He gets me and I get him. And uh, Job's this blessed man. He loses everything except for his nagging wife. <laughs> the devil uses every single calamity and causes every calamity, and keeps negativity, voices of negativity, in your ear. Now, we've had the little cartoon versions of a red uh, angel with the pitchfork on one shoulder and a white angel with the halo on the other shoulder, and they're all whispering into your ear. But the funny thing is that cartoon is not too far off from what we find in Scripture that the spiritual forces are there to convince you of one perspective or another. And so when you look at the experience of Job, where the devil is bringing physical calamity, bringing loss, bringing disease into Job's life with the express intent that he will side with the devil and verbally curse God, and stop being an example of a godly, God-fearing man. The devil's expressed spiritual intent is to bring things into Job's life physically and into his mind mentally, emotionally, 
to get himself to a place that he agrees with the devil and he curses God. He said, God, you're not fair. So by taking that example, and now let's look at what's going on in Persia at that time. We're about to, you know, we've, we're just in, a, in another transitional period from the Babylonian period to the Persian period. And Gabriel has already shared a vision with Daniel that, well, in about 200 years, you're going to have this Greek period coming in as, as well. And so Daniel has in his mind, okay, we're in, we're in this long haul and, and there's changes and there's things going on. What this angel of the Lord communicates in, in a way that Daniel doesn't feel like he needs to explain because the Jews understood there's a spiritual battle going on parallel to the physical battle is that, look, there is a plan. In, in fact, you, you look toward the end of, uh, of chapter 10, uh, this messenger calls it the book of truth. And this book of truth is what God has written down. Now, for those of you who are into quantum physics, you'll understand this more than the rest of you that were taught Newtonian physics in school. Quantum physics means that a God outside of time can see all time probabilities, all possible endings, all the branches of this tree that shows you every possible ending, and that God created the world and the universe in a way that there are all these branches, all these possibilities. And the reason why God interacts and instructs his people is he wants you to take a left where you need to take a left and a right where you need to take a right, metaphorically speaking, on these branches. And if you do this, and if you do that, and if you, you, know, if you humble yourself and pray, if you make these choices, the best ending will come even though it's a rough ride. And in the end, God will win. God's people will be spared as many as possible. And so God, outside of this, imagine uh, when you turn on your bathtub and you pour in the bubble bath and there's all these growing bubbles. A God who can see every single bubble as, as if it's a different reality of the universe and can write down, okay, this is the best route to save as many people as I can. And he writes it down. This is my roadmap. This is the plan. And then he comes to people like Daniel and other prophets and says, look, share this word with my people because this is what I need you to understand is going on. So you take the right path. Well, this messenger says, okay, God has written this book of truth, this map. And the enemy is looking at this route and saying, oh, I'm going to mess up your, I'm going to, totally mess up your road trip. And I'm going to go convince people to change things. And so what many commentators say is that what this spirit prince of Persia is doing, here Cyrus has just released the people, the Jews, to go back to Jerusalem. And many commentators look at this and say, the spirit prince of Persia and all of the evil angel influences there are trying to sway Cyrus, sway the leaders, sway the advisors to do something that goes against God's roadmap in the book of truth. And that's why at the same time, God has his angels, his representatives there. And he can only be fair if it's, if it's equal matching. That's why God himself intervenes in these big ways, so few and far between, is because the whole test is that Satan says God's not fair. And so at the same time, God's representatives are there speaking into the mind of Cyrus, the Persian leadership, and saying, no, 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 no. You've got to let these people go back to their country. Let them build their temple. What's it going to hurt you? 
let them go back home. Do this, do that, while at the same time, the enemy's forces are also whispering in his ear saying, no, no, you don't want to do that. Here's the danger, here's the fear, here's the loss. And so many commentators say there's a real battle going on in chapter 10, and the battle is not swords, the battle is not boxing, the battle is over your mind, the mind of the leaders. Now, I want us to take a step back, because I don't know if you see the world the same way as, as I do, probably, probably in some ways and probably in some ways not. But I don't know if you were scratching your head about a year and a half ago, two years ago, when you started seeing major shifts in society and large influxes of hate, large influxes of angst, uh, people who were angry, and you asked them, why are you so angry? And they couldn't explain it to you. They just knew they were really mad. Or you'd ask people, why are you marching? Well, because, uh, because, and they couldn't even explain why they're marching. Or anti, anti, anti this, anti that. And you'd ask them, well, I understand what you're standing against because I would stand against that behavior too. All people need to be digni- uh, treated with dignity and love and, and compassion. That's what it means to be a reflection of God. I get that, but what are you standing for? Because just like Mother Teresa, when someone came to her and said, uh, why aren't you going to join us for the anti-war rally? Her response was, if you have a pro-peace rally, I'll be there. There is a battle, a spiritual battle, that's happening that, since we can't see it, we don't understand why is humanity responding in the way that they are. And when we're scratching our heads, we're like, how did such a huge group of people who don't even know why they're upset, why are they so upset? Chapter 10 tells me one great possibility is there is a battle for you, and there are forces, as Paul says, not of flesh and blood, but principalities that are fighting for your mind and your soul. And if they can agitate you, distract you, get you upset, get you angry, and use up all your energy in that instead of being able to use all your energy looking around and saying, what has God made me stand for? What are my opportunities in my community? Who are the people that I need to spend all my energy loving them, showing them compassion, upholding them? Who are groups of people? There are groups of people, minorities, who who think just because of this color of my skin that I hate them or that I don't care for them or that I'm intimidated by them. How can I show them that I love them and I'm going to do everything I can to uplift them and help them achieve more goals than they, they ever imagined possible? That's the spiritual side God's kingdom saying, how can you treat people with dignity and, and uplift them? As we look at this spiritual battle that's going on, not in the background, it is the foreground. We're the background. We're the backdrop that's being affected by a spiritual battle. It's times like this, it's days like this, moments in history where we're scratching our heads saying, why in the, how did that happen so quickly? I think it's time for us to stop doing what uh, we've done for over a generation and, and stop downplaying the role of the spiritual war, to elevate the role of the spiritual war in our minds so that we can, we can see clearly what's going on. Scripture tells us, Paul is, is very clear, talking about clouds of deception coming over God's people, his leadership. That's a spiritual battle that's happening. It's our challenge this week as we read through again and again this week, 
chapter 10 to ask the question, God, what spiritual battle's been going on with me? How am I allowing the spiritual forces that I've kind of downplayed before, how am I letting them control my emotions, my thoughts, my, my very life calling, my destiny to express God and his love into a world that hurts so much? How, how can I be more aware of that? How can I let God truly have his way and win the battle for me? Wow, I can honestly say my perspective changed so much after that week's conversation. I imagine yours did too. Just know I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you this week that as you're going through the, the trials, the struggles, the spiritual battle that you're going through, that God truly will make himself known and show you what's going on on the spiritual side to, to let you know the battle he's doing for you because he loves you so desperately much and, and wants to have a relationship with you, your loved ones, your family, your kids. This has been an amazing conversation, but I don't want you to miss the very last session on Daniel. You never stand alone. And so make sure you don't miss our next episode, which is session 11. We're going through Daniel chapter 12. So if you want to read ahead, go ahead and read Daniel chapter 12 and prepare for another conversation that shows a God who loves you so much that he does everything possible to let you know it. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats and the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at thebiblelab.com. Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.